for tuning into the 13th episode of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. So if you or somebody that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them back to pathbackrecovery.com and there you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. And again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And boy, I have to jump right in. I want to talk about episode 13, but I am doing one of these rare daytime recordings when I'm by myself and I'm watching a guy in front of my my window here and he's just, I watched him carry his bike up a little while ago. I can only guess that he was going to the dermatology clinic and now he's just going back and forth. I think he doesn't want to have to carry his bike back down the stairs. And uh, he there is a ramp, but he's going over to the other side. So I will see him come back any minute now. But boy, watch this guy um, lock his bike to a tiny tree that uh, that anybody could probably break with their bare hands. As a matter of fact, in my first session, I, was, uh, I had a session before I'm recording this podcast. And I kind of thought, what if I see somebody heisting this guy's bike. You know, do uh, do I get my client and I, we become vigilantes, we run out there, we stop the thief, and uh, kind of decided that would probably be the right thing to do. But thank goodness nobody did that. My client and I had a wonderful session, and uh, now this guy, there he goes. Okay. Well, I almost want to pound on the window and uh, just point to him. There is a ramp down that way. Um, but I uh, should have a couple of other um, things happen, I'm sure, in front of the window today. Uh, I had a great text from a somebody listening to the podcast, a friend of mine, and I was at uh, Costco, actually, this weekend um, getting an eye exam, which, uh, boy, I'll probably end up going on about uh, that as I've gotten older and and my eyesight is starting to fail a little bit. That was a really vulnerable thing, but uh, you know, I went all in with my optometrist and uh, she diagnosed me with um, in my day I sit there and I look at my notes and then I've got a client on a couch and then I've got this window outside of me and apparently the older that we get our lenses on our eyes harden and so by me constantly going back and forth and back and forth my eyes just can't keep up and then I end up getting some pretty nasty um, headaches so gonna have some glasses actually kind of looking forward to that but uh, gotta gotta lean on my wife to be able to pick those out so that I will look intelligent in my glasses and not like as she described just a, an extremely old man so that's the goal. Uh, But at Costco, I get this text and it's from a guy who is, I guess, listening to the podcast. And he just said, hey, I got to up my game in front of your window. I had no idea that this was a competition. And I don't want people to think it's a competition, but I, I, boy, I, this is a, this is a creative guy. So I am just looking forward to the day on the calendar when he's coming in because I know that something big is to be expected. And this morning I got a text from a friend as well who was listening and I just love it. Out of the blue says, get the fudge, get the fudge first. Love it. And that was, of course, in reference to the Disneyland one-hour shopper um, story that I told a little while ago. So just loving the feedback. I really do appreciate it. And this last week, I I took a couple of screenshots because I just couldn't believe the because of the support of people like you, the podcast was actually in the top 10 of health podcasts for quite a while. And I actually caught it on the top 200 of all podcasts um, from iTunes for just a brief moment. And it quickly disappeared, but I couldn't believe it was there. And again, I'm just grateful for all of the support. So please continue to uh, share and subscribe and rate and, and pass along to your friends. I'm just grateful for the support of the podcast. So back to episode 13. Episode 13, how appropriate, because I'm recording this the day before Halloween. And it might even get up today might be in the morning tomorrow on Halloween 
But uh, and I and I'll say Halloween here in the U.S. I feel obligated to point out Halloween is something happening here in the United States because the stats on who's downloading the virtual couch again kind of blows my mind. Downloads from all over the world, and I know that in other areas that uh, Halloween isn't necessarily something that is celebrated. But thirteen for for some is a very unlucky number, and it's one of the first phobias that I remember learning about as a kid because I remember this is one that I memorized, and maybe some of you are already saying this one in your head, but it's called Triskaidekaphobia, and that is the fear of the number thirteen. And it sounds funny, but there are a lot of hotels around the world that do not have a 13th floor. There's a fun fact for you. And so I actually had to go look that up. And before I even get into that, I mean, the topic today, and you know, here I'm talking about the fear of the number 13. We've got Halloween, and thanks for all the tuning in. But boy, today again, I'm going to get just, I already got my soapbox sitting here because I cannot wait to talk about the topic today, which is the topic of pornography. And I'm going to, I'm going to cover this in a lot of, in several episodes actually. So we're going to bite off a little bit of that today and we'll get that in a second. But first, triskaidekaphobia. So I did a little bit of digging online. And so as we kind of mentioned there, it's a severe fear of the number 13, but as a phobia, it's more than just kind of a mild discomfort and people saying, oh, that's a bad number. And I actually identified with this young. I, I embraced it young. And so I loved the number 13 and I I wore the number 13 in baseball, some basketball, that sort of thing too. But so as a phobia, again, more than just mild discomfort, people with literally the, you know, the, the phobia, the condition exhibits symptoms of acute anxiety when they come across or confront the object of their fear, right? So when they come across 13, it is far more than a, oh, that's an unlucky number. I mean, we're talking now, you know, we have anxiety, we have panic, nausea, vomiting, difficulty breathing, rapid heartbeat, sweating, feelings of panic. So, so for some, honestly, if they were to stay on the 13th floor of a hotel, that would bring on a full-blown panic attack. So, so skipping floor 13 in hotels can save people who might suffer from this disorder the discomfort of being in an elevator even just with a 13th floor or having obviously a room on that floor. But so I did a little, you know, I wanted to find out where that started. And, um, and I love this, the, where I looked this up, it said, common knowledge has it that the fear of number 13 dates back to one of the earliest written texts, the Code of Hammurabi, which I did not find as common knowledge. But the story goes that the writers of the code left out the 13th law on the list. Um, however, I went on to dig a little more. The list actually has no numbers. But nonetheless, the superstitious fear of the number 13 popped up. And the number 13 uh, has also been um, kind of viewed negatively in, in a lot of early religions, including uh, Judas being the 13th to sit for the Last Supper um, in Christianity. But the superstition wasn't really blatantly um, out in the open until the 17th century. And that is where, uh, you know, that's where then skyscrapers and those sort of things started to become more of a big deal. So um, the habit of leaving out the 13th floor in tall hotels is fairly new. So the skyscrapers, I guess, didn't really come around until around 1885. And even then the first skyscraper, which I think is kind of, this is a fun fact, the home insurance building was only 12 stories tall. And so the tradition appears to become actually is, is omitting the 13th floor and everything above it because a lot of people felt like anything taller than 12 floors would cast unseemly shadows in their area. So thus we got rid of 13 or 13. There's a couple of reasons there why 13 was viewed as a bad thing. But if you suffer from triskaidekaphobia, then I would of course recommend that you go see a therapist and, uh, and you will be able to overcome that, I am sure. Uh, quick thanks to Eli's Extracts, sponsor of today's episode of The Virtual Couch. Eli's Extracts makes an all-natural organic shaving cream, both for men and women. I used it today on my bald head. The product is scented using essential oils, which is part of the magic of Eli's Extracts. And did you know that every time you shave, you're literally taking away a layer of your skin, leaving behind skin exposed and open to the elements? What you put on that exposed skin matters. And instead of putting uh, things on your skin, ingredients with 20-letter names designed simply to add color to a product or to provide it with a shelf life that will carry it well into the next decade... 
Eli's takes the shaving experience seriously, and you should too. So with Eli's Extracts, you not only get a better shave, but also healthier, better-looking skin. So head over to Eli's-Extracts.com and use coupon code VIRTUALCOUCH, all one word, for 25% off your entire order. And I have to thank the scientists at Eli's Extracts who just sent me a new batch this weekend to hand off to in-studio guests of the virtual couch. And I, I couldn't help myself, but I, I cracked it open yesterday and smelled uh, the, the, the Antigua. And my goodness, I mean, this was, again, one of those where it, it's so fresh right now. It smells so good. I kind of wanted to eat it. Um, but I tried that long ago on a piece of toast, and uh, that did not work well. I thought, oh, it's organic and all natural, but, but still maybe not necessarily something that you want to eat. But uh, thanks to the folks at Eli's Extracts for sponsoring today's episode of the virtual couch. So... Let's talk about pornography. So for some people, that can actually be shocking in and of itself. And I I want you to know I've spoken to actually tens of thousands of people on the subject of pornography, pornography addiction, um, also on protecting your family, your your homes from, from pornography. And a couple of things led me to wanting to record the episode this morning. There's a few things, actually. First, admittedly, two of the guests that I had booked for late last week and then uh, possibly even earlier today had to cancel on me, and that was really a bummer. There's a couple of really great therapists that are coming in to tackle some some just uh, very important topics, um, couples counseling, some things on eating disorders, that sort of thing. So we'll get to them pretty soon. But second, and this is what I really, I love the fact that this is fresh in my mind. Just last night, I had the opportunity to speak to a large group of youth uh, around a fire, a literal fireside to talk about the dangers of pornography, as well as some strategies of what to do when they come across it. Because as is kind of the case nowadays, it's inevitable. And, uh, you know, in the past, we used to say, if, you know, if your teenager, if your child runs into pornography, what do you do? And a lot of parents wanted to just say, man, if I can just get them through their teenage years and uh, they don't see it, then then that'll be all the better. But uh, boy, th- those days are, are long gone. And so now it's, it's definitely not a matter of if, but when. So when they are exposed to pornography, then what do you do? Uh, how do you how do you handle that? How are you able to nurture some open dialogue around what they see and what the feelings are that uh, that, that come with uh, seeing some of the pornographic images and that sort of thing. So um, so that was some of the stuff I, I talked about last night. And, uh, and, and, you know, it really was neat because, again, it got into, we, we got down the path of how the brain works and how to view thoughts that are merely thoughts is how to, how, how to avoid giving unnecessary weight to these unproductive thoughts, those like having to do with, um, you know, guilt or shame or, or some of these things around pornography. And so we'll probably talk a little bit about that today and then in future episodes as well. But third, and I thought this was kind of interesting, I was recently asked if I could write an article about um, the, the nature of the topic was basically when pornography goes from reasonable use to then getting out of hand. And uh, I got to admit, I, I couldn't write that article because to me, it, it never is productive. And I know that there's even some controversy around that, but uh, I'm pretty passionate about this. And, and uh, long ago, I think I lost track of how many people that I've worked with, individuals and couples, that um, a, a component of pornography or pornography addiction comes into the marriage. And so, you know, I, of course, everyone can have their own uh, thoughts and views and opinions. But, uh, but I don't see casual viewing or use of pornography as anything that is productive or that, that doesn't necessarily cause harm. And, and we'll kind of get into that, too. But I'll, a little sneak preview on that. Um, my opinion in general is that pornography does warp sexuality. So uh, pornography does cause people to tend to objectify other people. 
uh, look at them as objects. And I think that it does set some unrealistic expectations over um, around intimacy, what intimacy is like and what it's about, what the goals of intimacy are as a couple. And I believe that when people can really focus on uh, what's at their core um, as far as, you know, using some of these techniques I've talked about in previous podcasts, uh, EFT, emotionally focused therapy, of, of really being able to understand this new paradigm of how to communicate with your partner and be vulnerable and no fixing and no judging, that you truly can um, create a more intimate connection with your partner. And then that leads to true intimacy. Uh, but that pornography, and, and again, in my opinion, doesn't. It's one of those things where you know, I, I know that people can probably come up with examples of, uh, actually, I had somebody at the gym when they found out that I had started this Path Back Recovery Program. He said, uh, hey, I kind of don't get it. You know, he said, he said, um, you know, I always looked at pornography as uh, something to kind of get you started. And to me personally, then that's kind of ignoring a deeper um, issue where a connection with your partner, if you feel like you are truly connected and vulnerable and open, then that that can be enough to really get things started. Just truly being present with your partner and uh, and not you know having to go to these images that are not of your partner. And so again, I can't wait. I, I know I'm going to get into a lot of these sort of things over the next few weeks and months with this podcast. But so um, I so I couldn't write that article, and I, I kind of wrote back that uh, boy, I don't really feel like there is a time when it can go from reasonable use to out of hand. Um, again, because it, it truly will warp sexuality. And there's some nice research now finally kind of coming to play here where uh, I know that there was uh, there was something I read not too long ago that talked about how in over 50% of divorce cases now, um, there was an element of pornography or um, pornography addiction, abuse, compulsive sexual behavior that that was in there as well. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I do feel like we were slowly coming from where I've been for, I feel like, a long time of where pornography has been viewed as, as a negative. Um, and now that's kind of starting to make it a little more mainstream that that's not necessarily anything that is, uh, that is productive. The problem is, though, the pornography industry in general is growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, I know that for a fact. And uh, maybe in a future episode of the podcast, we'll get into some of those facts and figures. But boy, it is, it is unfortunately not going anywhere anytime soon, and which I think is all the more reason why we need to further this dialogue and be able to talk about it, and especially when it comes to our kids and uh, to, our, um, to our teenagers. So I want to hit on a couple of facts, um, if you will, about pornography and, and kind of how young kids are being sexualized young. And, and again, we'll lead this into how to talk to your kids about pornography. So I hope that you'll kind of bear with me here. And, you know, I'm not going to take on the explicit rating or warning on any of these podcasts. Uh, that's kind of just not the way I roll. But uh, but boy, I don't I don't want to be bashful about it either. So let me give you a little history as far as I understand and what I've seen in my practice. So back in the day when when someone was thought to have been sexualized, and that typically meant that there had been some sort of molestation, uh, you know, sexually molested or that sort of thing um, as a as a child, as a as a kid. And by that term sexualized, here's this is really important, I feel like, and I think this helps a lot of people understand. Um, why uh, early exposure to pornography or, or um, sexual abuse, how it kind of plays a role in, uh, in moving forward in, in a child's life. So when, um, when someone has viewed pornography from an early age, and if I even go back to my youth, uh, we're talking if, you know, there, yeah, sure, I think there were, actually, I was, I predate VHS tape. So I know that uh, I remember hearing that there were movie uh, film, film roles. Uh, I remember on Happy Days, they talked about stag films and they would, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on 
was it a eight track play? That was a that was <laughs> that was audio. But there was some sort of like a movie reels that sort of thing. Um, but but you know, and then it eventually went into VHS cassettes and DVD players. I know that that working with some clients that uh, they used to go to um, movie theaters and watch uh, watch pornographic movies and that sort of thing. But so when a when a kid would get introduced to that young through magazines or that sort of thing, at that point now he sees the human body as different. So if he has now been, he or she has been fed a heavy dose of pornography young, uh, now, and here's what I like to tell my clients, so now fast forward to now when you have a child sitting in fourth or fifth grade, and just somebody who has been exposed to pornography now, Mrs. Johnson, who is there teaching the class, uh, she's not just Miss Johnson, my teacher, she's Miss Johnson, and now she has breasts and she has you know, all of these things that now he, you know, he or she is more hyper aware of. And so being fed that heavy dose or even, even just a little bit of pornography young, um, that is where this phrase being sexualized comes from. So, so at that point now, you know, when Mrs. Johnson is, I don't know, leaning over the desk to hand back a paper and the person, the, the kid who's been sexualized is now looking down her shirt or cleavage or, you know, starts to kind of go to these thoughts in his head while, meanwhile, his partner next door, you know, sitting next to him uh, just looks at Mrs. Johnson as, okay, how'd I do on my test? And so I, I hope you can kind of catch the significance there. And and I know that a lot of these, if some of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast might even feel like, so, or what's wrong with that? And I think it's just to set the context now of, you know, you can see how then when the young mind, when the, I always like to call it, that when the wiring gets set young, that that is kind of the way a person is viewed, uh, especially when they're that young. Now they're going to go through life a little more, um, you know, their, their kind of default settings now are a little bit more toward objectifying. And so then as they objectify and, uh, and then typically what's happening with the brain too is it's not just like now the brain says, okay, I got my fix, I saw some things, and now I will go forth and objectify, you know, moving forward. But they're, you know, typically somebody who then becomes sexualized is going to turn toward pornography and uh, typically tying in uh, pornography's best friend masturbation along in there too. And now we've got a whole flurry and flood of brain chemicals that have gotten involved in there too. So I kind of want to talk about that for a second. So I, I have some um, some info here from Dr. Patrick Carnes, who's a renowned sexual addiction counselor and uh, expert in his field. And he talked about in some research with over a, a thousand individuals with sex addiction or pornography addiction. He said that it's more challenging to overcome than drugs or alcohol. And Dr. Carnes wrote that we have learned that addictive obsession can exist in whatever generates significant mood alteration, whether it be the self-nurturing of food or the excitement of gambling or the arousal of seduction. One of the more destructive parts of sex addiction, and this is this is huge to me, I think. He said one of the more destructive parts of sex addiction is that you literally carry your own source of supply. So what this means is that the brain naturally produces these chemicals, these feel-good chemicals. And so unlike any drug or alcohol substance, um, our own internal chemistry, our brain can produce these addictive chemicals when you are viewing pornography. And these chemicals are very addictive. Uh, and when they're abused, um, you can actually get high then on your own internal brain chemicals. So now put that back in context of when someone has been sexualized, right? So when they have viewed pornography at an early age, and I think it's important to note right now that, boy, that, that average age of first exposure continues to get lower and lower. And last I heard, it was between 8 and 11. And I, I don't know if those uh, those numbers have been updated anytime soon. 
But the point being that take an 8- to 11-year-old um, young man or young woman and they are exposed to pornography and now all of a sudden they have been sexualized, right? So now they're viewing everyone through this different lens, this kind of objectified lens. And uh, and and then now we start to tie that in you know, through puberty with masturbation and now you have all of these uh, those feel-good addictive chemicals that are going on in their brain and they carry their own supply. So now every time that they objectify, um, what's happening, right? So now they, they, their brain is going, okay, hey, we're, we're, this is what we're doing, right? We're, let's get these chemicals going. We know how to make this work. And so then that leads to um, more sexualization, more acting out, uh, more looking for pornography, more relying on the drug. Now, here's where Dr. Carnes gets a little deeper. He said, once released, the chemicals have an immediate effect on the mind and body. But here's the key. They're relatively short-lived. So addicted individuals often need to repeat the cycle over and over and over again to maintain the high that comes with viewing pornography. And so when trying to maintain that high, then over time that alters the chemical makeup of the brain. So Dr. Carnes wrote that prolonged use alters these individuals' brain chemistry until they require the excitement in order to feel normal. Boy, there are two big things right there that they require the excitement in order to feel normal. So um, so now think about that, right? So now we have uh, teenagers who have been exposed early to pornography. They have now become sexualized and they view things through more of the lens of objectification. So these aren't just their classmates. They are, they are looking at, you know, the changes to the body and excitement and that sort of thing. And then the brain kicks in and says, hey, I know what we can do with this to get these feel-good chemicals going. And then as um, Dr. Karn said, in the process of maintaining that high, they've uh, now altered the chemical makeup of the brain. And then over time, now the brain chemistry requires the excitement in order to feel normal. Now, I don't want you to think, the the one thing that I kind of skipped out on here at the beginning is... Um, I believe that guilt and shame are, are, you know, they are not productive at all. And so even last night when I, when I talked to a group of youth about pornography addiction or chastity or these sort of things, boy, I just want to let them know that uh, these feelings are 100% normal. Um, this is, you know, we are designed to, you know, um, if you, if you want to head down the, the Christian path to procreate, replenish the earth, and that, uh, you know, we were made, um, you know, the, the way that the, the human anatomy works is an absolute miracle to be able to um, give birth, reproduce, that sort of thing. And so, boy, the feelings that are there. I mean, I often tell uh, when I have people come into my office and they are just struggling with compulsive sexual behavior, pornography addiction, I often let them know that, hey, you know, this is this again, this is so normal that it actually when I get clients that have zero sexual desire, um, that that is more of a struggle to work with. So I want to remove the guilt and the shame out of that and just say, OK, um, you know, let's just kind of figure out uh, um, what we do with this. You know, what do you want to do with this? What, what behaviors do you want to get rid of or remove or manage, you know, in your life to make your life better? Because what happens is over time, again, as we're talking about with what Patrick, Dr. Carnes is talking about, is when you are requiring the excitement in order to feel normal and that excitement only comes through this, uh, you know, sexualization or, or stimulation, uh, guess what? Now all of a sudden, the you know, that the brain, the the basal ganglia we've talked about before, the habit center, it's already kind of locked in on. Hey, well, I know what uh, what we can do. You know, we can go search out pornography, masturbate, um, orgasm, those sort of things. And so now all of a sudden, we've created this habit. And now what I deal with a lot of times are people that now pornography has become a coping mechanism. So when they are stressed, when they are lonely, when they are hungry, when they are angry, when they are tired, when they are frustrated, when they feel like they don't have a voice. 
then the brain kicks in, this habit center, the basal ganglia, kicks in and says, I got this, you know, uh, don't even worry, I know what we can do. And then, you know, w- what we talked about again is that is those, those chemicals, uh, they're, they're maintained, that maintaining that feeling becomes shorter and shorter. And so the brain says, I need more and more and more. And now you can see how it becomes, in my view, it becomes a problem. Because then what I see, and if you, if you check out my Path Back Recovery site, what I try to keep talking about, and I've worked with so many people on, is then that all of a sudden now we've got people that have spent far more time uh, sexualizing people and chasing after that high that they don't have the life that they wanted to live. They don't have the relationship with people, with partners, with God, with you name it. They, they have distanced themselves because in general, um, pornography and addiction to pornography is driven by shame and secrecy. So that is why one of the best ways to deal with these problems is to bring them to light in a way that's supportive, that's educational, that kind of normalizes these feelings more and again removes the guilt and shame. Because it's likely that people that are struggling in this area feel alone, they feel helpless with the situation, and they feel like they can't ask for help. But meanwhile, they're repeating this cycle where they say, I can, I can, I can overcome this at any point. And I have guys that can go a month, two months, three months, um, even longer, but they're just white knuckling it through and uh, and not really doing the work that kind of leads to putting this in their rearview mirror once and for all. And I know I keep saying him, him, him. I've worked with both men and women, but I'll be honest. Primarily, you know, my, my practice, I, I've worked with men that uh, that are addicted. So again, if they can, if we can find ways to be able to um, talk about this and not feel that judgment or being punished, ultimately that's what we need to work toward. But instead, these people that struggle with uh, with pornography addiction, compulsive sexual behavior, are kind of left in the dark to fight their monsters alone. So frequent, non-judgmental, frank discussions or check-ins become just an absolute ray of sunshine in helping people fight their battles. So, so you know, a couple of things that I have to think about that. I want to talk about, um, I'll, I'll talk often with my kids. As a matter of fact, I think my kids now... Uh, they kind of laughingly, you know, if I, hey, let's, uh, hey, kids, let's, uh, let's have a family meeting and somebody's inevitably going to say, is it about pornography? You know, and, and I'll typically say, well, I mean, that wasn't the plan, but we can kind of weave that in if you guys want. Um, but I still remember as a therapist, um, we all share a Kindle cloud account. And I think I've maybe mentioned this on a previous episode, but the books on my cloud account can be kind of funny. There's a lot of things about, you know, uh, children of divorce or, you know, how to improve couples relationship. And then there's several on there of, uh, overcoming pornography addiction, um, or some of those others. And I, at times when my kids were younger, I'd say, Hey, uh, Hey, remember dad's a therapist, right? So when you're seeing these things, mom and dad are fine. Uh, you know, uh, dad is, uh, he's, you know, he is, he is avoiding pornography. And, uh, so that one always kind of cracks me up, but, but having those kind of discussions, I think is what is important. So having regular family meetings where you can touch base in a, and again, in a non-fixing, non-judgmental way to say, not just, you know, has anybody seen anything, but just, Hey, what's the last thing you saw? What's, what's the last, uh, you know, pornographic image you saw and what'd you do with that? And we just had one of these meetings a few weeks ago at my house. And I was just so grateful because with social media, I mean, with Instagram, with Facebook, with Snapchat there, those things are there. They really are. And, uh, and a lot of the times our kids don't even, they don't even want or mean to click on those, but then there's that curiosity. And so that's the part where I want to make sure that they know, look, you can come to me and there's not going to be that guilt and shame or that fixing. I want to be able to help. And a lot of times just being able to talk about it again, that is the, the, the start to, to getting that help that they need. 
So, and, and in particular, when it comes to the social media um, pieces, I also think that it's important to kind of stay, you know, to stay on top of that, to have those regular meetings, to have those one-on-ones, go into your kids' rooms and lay on their floor and um, ask them, ask them about what, what they've seen or when the last time that they've seen something. And I'm pretty open as well about, of course, that I, I think that a parent has the right to check their kids' devices. And, and I let my kids know that I'm going to do that from time to time. Sure. Uh, and there are people right here that, well, they'll go erase their history or they'll go do, you know, whatever. Sure. But, I, you know, I want to be able to have that conversation. And hopefully they're not going to do that. Um, I'm also going to, in just a week or two, I've been doing a lot of work on researching different um, filters and 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 software programs, hardware programs, that sort of thing to put in place. And I used to have a pretty strong stance on when people would say, what's the best filter to avoid pornography? Uh, I would kind of say, oh, you know, there's a lot of good ones out there, but ultimately, you know, but ultimately if somebody wants to get around a filter, they can. And so it's better to kind of, you know, be able to just talk about this and be there for our kids, our, our spouses, our family members. But I, I've kind of reversed that stance a little bit. I mean, it's not a bad idea to have these, at least have a have a little wall up there that um, will hopefully kind of stop some of the people that maybe are really challenged to uh, to go and just search randomly for different things. And if there is a blocker that pops up and puts a little distance between that thought and action, then I think that can be a good thing. So I think I've found a couple that I really like, and I'll, I'll report more on that here in a couple of weeks. Um, but I really wanted to be able to uh, to kind of talk about um, being able to just continue to have these open discussions with our teens. What are you seeing? When are you seeing it? What do you do with that? And and I know that there, I get asked all the time too, well, you know, shouldn't I just restrict my kids in general from a lot of these things on social media? And, I, and I'm obviously going to leave that. That choice is up to, to every parent. And, and maybe I swing a little bit more toward the side of I work with enough teenagers where if they don't have access to some of these things, they're going to find it anyway. And, um, and you know, or it's that, that theory where you see that if a kid has been deprived of sugar their entire lives, when they go to, uh, go to somebody else's house, they just eat themselves silly. And then when they're older, they probably have more of a problem with that than had they been kind of taught how to deal with some of these things, um, whether it is sugar, whether it's uh, viewing por- you know, um, uh, pornography, those sort of things. So, so trying to be more open and have uh, productive conversations around it than just saying, oh, my gosh, stay away from those things. That's evil. You can't do that. Now, am I going to, you know, are there going to be certain things I'm going to say no to? Absolutely. I mean, if my kid wanted to get on Tinder right now, um, forget it. I mean, I mean, that's like, that's, that's ridiculous, you know, or some of the other sites that are, that, you know, there are some clear intentions on what, uh, what go on there. But, but I mean, bottom line, we have to be able to talk to our youth and to our teens. You are the parent. You have the right to search your kids' devices. You have the right to have rules in your home. But my opinion is to let your kids know clearly what those rules and expectations are and then be willing to follow through on those uh, on those rules and on those expectations. So, you know, I, I hope that maybe we'll kind of call it good here and this will be uh, part one of the uh, maybe a pornography primer. But I think it's important to kind of recognize what that uh, what sexualization actually means and that uh, unfortunately now with that average age of exposure so low that our children are being sexualized at a very young age. Now, I don't want that to be a, a place where now we panic because this goes back to that. We want to know that. We want that data because now we can work with it. And it's going to be uncomfortable for a kid to come to you anyway. It's not something where you're going to say, okay, I did it. I had the talk one time and uh, you know, we talked about it. It's going, to take, it's going to take a lot of work and to make this kind of more of a regular conversation to have with your kids. And I find that there's a lot of different ways to do it too. Sometimes we ask, you know, um, we make sure and just ask, our kids what 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 are they seeing what what's everybody else seeing what are people talking about and uh you know have they ever seen um 
you know, inappropriate things online and have people ever sent them and what the pictures and what do they do about that? And just being able to have that discussion, that conversation. Uh, long ago, I had gone to a training where, you know, just get in the habit of identifying it. I mean, you know, I, I still take, I'm grateful that I can walk around the mall with my kids and we walk by a Victoria's Secret and uh, ad or, or store and somebody's going to say, that's pornography, you know, and it's like we're, we're identifying it. Or, you know, if we watch a movie and there might be a scene that uh, didn't see coming in there and uh, and we can kind of say, hey, all right, what'd you, what do you think about that one? And somebody inevitably is going to know, yeah, yeah, that was pretty inappropriate. But being able to talk about it and not just have this guilt and shame or this cloud hanging over. Because go back to that. Our goal is that our kids can come to us if they are having a problem or if they find themselves having a problem down the road and know that we're going to say, okay, thank you so much for that data. Tell me everything that, you know, that, that you're thinking right now. And where do you think this came from and how can I help? And you still get to express what your, you know, your worries are, your thoughts, you know, man, I'm so grateful that you bring this, uh, this, this information to me. And I, and I really, I worry about what this can do, um, long-term. So let me help you. And that's coming more from a strength-based place and not a guilt and shame position. So we talked a little bit about the sexualization and what that looks like. We're basically my goal right now is to be able to have this open dialogue and also to understand again, a little bit more about, um, when we talked about Patrick Carnes and what he shared there is our kids are carrying around their own supply. Not just our kids, we are too, right? But their own supply of these addictive chemicals, images, pictures uh, that uh, that they can then, you know, kind of use for to, to, to try to kind of amp up their brain and get that feeling whenever they want to. So we need to be able to teach them how to kind of recognize that thought and to let that thought move through their mind and, and be focused on something that's more productive or something that is is more important to them. Really be present in that moment. And a lot of times uh, that's gonna that could require reaching out to somebody. Let me introduce one more concept and then I'll kind of wrap things up. When I'm working with people who struggle with pornography addiction, but this concept kind of carries through to any kind of addictive behavior. There's there's three things. There's a trigger, there's a thought, and there's an action. So the triggers can be anything. A lot of times the triggers are I call them crimes of opportunity. If somebody is alone, um, you know, then they re- then they feel like okay. If they're alone, then the thought comes to okay. I can I can look at pornography. I can you know nobody's around. I can fire up the computer. Nobody's going to catch me. And then that leads to action. So we got trigger, thought, action. And my goal is helping my clients put distance between that thought and action because the more distance they can put between the thought and the action, they're going to be able to get out of these situations that have been habitual. So some big components there too, between when you're trying to put distance between thought and action, um, sometimes the first things that we can do is is create behaviors that put distance between thought and action. I've worked with people that have become, uh, they do push-ups, they do pull-ups, they go for a run, um, you know, they, they snap a rubber band on the wrist. There are so many things you can do to put that distance between thought and action from a behavioral standpoint, from a what can I do. But ultimately, we want to be able to, to figure that part out cognitively in our brain. And that's where I feel like mindfulness, awareness, those sort of things come into play of being able to recognize that thought is what it is. It's just a thought and learn how to move that thought through your head and be present, not to act upon this, this pattern, this habitual pattern of behavior. So we're identifying triggers and triggers, again, a crime of opportunity, being lonely. I get a lot of people that have triggers of stress and because of the way that their brains now work, because of the way that habit cycle works, 
when they are triggered and when they are stressed, then that's when the brain kicks in and says, I got this. I got a real quick fix that's going to give us these feel-good chemicals. And uh, and then, unfortunately, what we learned a little bit earlier is, but also over time, the brain's also going to say, man, we got to amp this up because this isn't quite doing it for me and I need more of these feel-good chemicals. So so we got to look for even, you know, um, more... Uh, more bizarre, more crazy, more, more, you know, all these other things that will try to get more juice going through the brain. And so, so that's what we're trying to avoid. So we got the trigger, we got the thought and we got the action putting distance between thought and action. Um, I will say, yeah, a couple other triggers uh, in what we talked about earlier, objectifying. I do think that one of the biggest struggles for a lot of people is objectification and not even recognizing that when, when people walk by other people and they find them attractive, that there's, I mean, I see it all the time. Time. And I talk with clients every day about, do are they able to just focus on the person's face or do they look from the face to the chest to the butt, back to the chest, up to the face and objectify. And then their mind goes to this place of, you know, what would it be like to be intimate with that person or what would they look like naked or that sort of thing. And I think a lot of people, and I get this all the time where people just say, yeah, that's the way, that's the way I think. That's the way the, the brain works. Doesn't everybody do it? And I think to a point, sure, people will objectify, but it is a, it is a, a, you know, it's a big difference between somebody who has awareness around that and says, I need to not do that. Or, you know, sure, I'm going to glance over there at one point, but I need to kind of stay really present and focused and not do that again versus the person that feels like it's completely normal. And then is, you know, two, three looks lingering, gawking, and, and oftentimes making people just feel downright uncomfortable. I think my wife gets tired of this, but when we go to, again, I second mention at Costco today, um, but there's that little area where. Uh, all the all the fruits and vegetables are sometimes I'll just park my cart there and I just watch people and unfortunately when you're watching people you can watch the eyes of a lot of people then objectify other people and sometimes she'll come back and I'll say you totally got objectified you know and she's like knock it off and uh, it, you know and it's so wild to see and I know that in my own mind I mean you know um, I've had times in my sessions where there's one time in particular where this uh, just a wonderful client that I've worked with and she she bent down to reach for something um out of her purse and you know and there was a, a gap in her shirt where she looked down and I immediately you know threw my head up to the left and and then I but I let her know I just said hey I want you to know I I you know I'm looking I looked away I did not want to objectify you I really didn't want to and she kind of laughed and, and she's like, yeah, when I reached down, I kind of felt that, oh, man, you know, that this is probably pretty vulnerable. So um, but being able to give dialogue to that, there was a time with a woman out in the waiting room here that I still to this day kick myself over because it's somebody that I, I don't really know. I've seen her on occasion. Uh, seems like a really nice woman. And I walked in um, from going to the bathroom between sessions and she was uh, same thing, sitting in a chair, kind of bent down, was uh, interacting with her kids. And I felt like when she looked up to say hi, that I was, you know, I, I had, you know, my, my eyes were right there and I felt so bad because I wanted to say, hey, um, you know, even if my, my, if my eyes were there, I was immediately recognizing that I did not want to objectify you. And so I was looking, away. but I couldn't say all that. I just went, hey, uh, hi. And to this day, I feel like, you know, if I ever see her again, I want to say, hey, this might be a little creepy, but I uh, just want to let you know, I was not objectifying you or, you know, or if my mind was starting to go there, I apologize. And I was quickly, you know, pulling out of that. So, so anyway, um, that's one of the, the triggers that I think a lot of people have too. There's also a thing that I think, so we'll throw one more acronym out there. Um, you might hear this in the world of uh, pornography, addiction recovery, those sort of things. But a lot of things that lead to triggers, there's an acronym, HALT. Hungry, are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired? 
And if any of those things are going on too, a lot of times when we're kind of feeling down, then that those are triggers that then lead to thoughts, right? The thoughts of, okay, now I can turn to pornography and, uh, and then the action of actually doing that. And so um, being able to recognize in those moments, if I am hungry, if I am angry, if I am lonely, if I am tired, then I need to be, I need to have my guard up because inevitably that's the, that thought is going to come next. And it, at those times, sometimes it's hard to really be aware or present to put that distance between the thought and the action. Okay, I am sure that I have gone on far longer than I think when I end up saving this thing. It's, uh, I, I don't know, I'm not sure how long this will be. But I am so, I, I'm thankful, I'm grateful that you were able to, to hang in here if you did this long on kind of this, uh, this maybe first ramp, uh, this first uh, ramp up of talking about pornography. It is something I realized again, every time I get a chance to speak about this and, and boy, I will, I will come speak to your group. I mean, this is, this is something I am very passionate about. Last night, uh, I'm, I'm dancing around this fire. The fire was so hot. It was so hot. And there were kids all over the place and they were asking amazing questions. And, and I just could have gone on and on and on because I start with one topic and then we start talking about how the brain works and changing the relationship with your thoughts and, and, uh, and how we all need to kind of, um, you know, band together and fight pornography and be there for each other and, and, uh, allow people to be vulnerable, no fixing and judgment statements and, and all work together and hold hands and kumbaya and unicorns and rainbows and, and everything. Um, um, but I felt like that was where we were headed last night. Uh, kind of fun fact. I didn't know it was going to be literally around a fire. And so I couldn't see my notes. And so I just was uh, over time slowly just throwing my notes into the fire. And that was kind of, I actually felt like that maybe caused the presentation to go in a better way because I was able to be a little bit more off the cuff and try to just feel what the what the crowd or what the kids wanted to hear and the leaders as well. And so I was just, it was such a neat experience. But but I'm passionate about it. I want you to be passionate about it. I want you to be comfortable talking about it with your kids and uh, with your spouse and with those around you because you are going to run into this. I mean, it's it's inevitable. It's here. Um, I do feel like pornography is a plague. It's not going away. And uh, But we can be on the forefront. We can be the ones that are, that we're the pioneers. We're the ones that are out there kind of, you know, fighting this deadly addiction. We're trying to protect our kids. I'll, boy, I've got so many more stories I can tell you um, about experiences and interacting uh, even with uh, someone from the pornography industry and and uh, just some of the thoughts and, and the things that, uh, that are kind of put out there about, um, you know, pornography not being in the hands of kids and that's not what they're going after. And, and you know, I'm sorry, but I find that hard to believe when almost every teenager that I work with there's an element of pornography um, or compulsive sexual behavior that is part of their life and they don't want that in there and they want to get rid of that. So um, join me in that fight. Uh, And again, another plug for if you or anybody else is struggling with pornography addiction um, needs help, go to pathbackrecovery.com there. It's an online program. It's uh, you can take it at your own pace. There's 40-something videos that I've shot all between, somewhere between 7 to 12 minutes long. It's a faith-based program. Starts with, uh, you know, there's some really faith-promoting scriptures um, out of the, mainly out of the New Testament, I believe, that I think just kind of give some hope. And then uh, there's a workbook that goes along with the videos and just some exercises that will help people break free from pornography, addiction, compulsive sexual behavior. If you go to pathbackrecovery.com, you can download an ebook that I just, uh, I put together that's, um, it's five mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. And uh, boy, those are, I think those are pretty, pretty common things if you go there that uh, maybe either you've said that to yourself or, or you've heard your spouse say it, or you've even maybe told your kids, hey, here's the way you overcome it. And, uh, and they're all you know, great ideas, but uh, there can be trouble in the implementation or problems in the implementation. 
So thank you so much for joining me on this episode, and we will have more to come soon. I'll probably take a few more episodes with some interviews and that sort of thing before we have another one on pornography, but I am so grateful to now have this one down there. Um, it's out, and uh, and I think this gives us a nice place to start when having a discussion around pornography addiction. Uh, and again, if I can help, um, reach out to contact at pathbackrecovery.com or there's a contact on virtualcouch.xyz that you can go to as well. And please uh, spread this one around if you really feel like this would be something that can be beneficial to other people to just get the ball rolling on how to talk to their kids about pornography addiction or just a little bit about the mechanics of, uh, of, of how um, how the addiction cycle works and, uh, and, and introducing this concept of trigger and then thought and action and putting distance between the thought and the action. So plenty more that we'll talk about in the future. I am so grateful for you joining me today, and I'm grateful for the wonderful, talented Aurora Florence and her song, It's Wonderful, that's going to take us out. And I'll see you next time on The Virtual Couch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most It's wonderful Heal the legs and hearts you broke the